you'll please remain standing for the Word of the Lord. Hear Him as He speaks to us once again this morning. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of that month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall take count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall take it from either the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. Then the whole assembly of congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall put some of the blood, and they shall put it on their two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on a fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, Lord. Once again, we ask for your great blessing to direct us here, that you would inspire us, that you would speak powerfully to us, illuminate this word, so that we might be different because of the work in which you do in our hearts, now and forever we pray. Amen. If you would, grab a seat and grab your Bibles. We are looking at Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. If we'll look along those lines, please, that would be great. I have not tried to hide my passion and my desire that this congregation would be one that would be passionately committed to the Word of God. It's one of the great reasons why Kelly and I were interested in attending Hebron and being a part of your congregation because of the history that is there of attentiveness to the Word of God. We live in a society right now that if anything is intent on shaping and molding and making God in their own image, defining for us what God should be like. If God exists at all, then He better act or He should act the way I want Him to be. That's how we get most of our notions of what God is like. And it's hard to shake those kind of notions. How different it is then, when we turn to the Scriptures, God's authoritative Word for us, His infallible Word, which speaks to us and directs us and tells us exactly what our lives should be like, exactly who He truly is. Our lives should be focused upon the Scriptures, should arise out of the Scriptures. And if you've been a believer for any period of time, if you've been worshiping here at Hebron or alike, you know that that's true. You know that there's an inextricable link between your faith, between your practice of your faith, and attentiveness to the Word of God. Having said that, 
It's also real clear that so many of us don't take the time that we know we should to read God's Word. Now, there are lots of reasons for that. There's the busyness of our lives. There's the confusion of reading the text, the failure of feeling like you're getting something out of it. There's the, the things that interfere, the family responsibilities, other things we have. But bottom line is that the root cause for all of us, we know that we should be much more attentive to the Word than what we are. I want to point out one reason today why I fear that that's the case. So often, most of us don't know what we're looking for when we read the Scriptures. And therefore, we never find it. We don't know what we're reading the Bible to understand. And therefore, we don't understand. I am not big on horticulture. As a matter of fact, I don't have much interest in horticulture at all. If you're scrambling to think horticulture, plants, gardening, flowers, that kind of stuff... As a matter of fact, when some people, and by the way, this is not an invitation for all of you horticulturists out there to come and teach me all the great things about horticulture. I don't want to know, okay? But I don't have any, I, I just, I'm just not interested. That's just not my thing. When people start talking about, oh, let's go garden or something, I start daydreaming of root canals. Uh, I, I just, I, I don't, my interest is not in horticulture and gardening and, and, and flowers, that kind of stuff. So Kel and I, a couple of weeks ago, she says, hey, let's go on a date. Oh, great, let's go on a date. Let's go to Phipps Conservatory. Now, if you know Phipps Conservatory, it's a big plant place down in Oakland. And I mean, that's all. It, and so I'm like being the good husband. Oh, yes, dear, let's go. Okay, so we go and we're down there and we're walking and, every, and people are really enjoying it. They're really marveling at everything. And, you know, I'm like, oh, look, another big room full of green plants. You know, everything's a green room filled with green plants, and that's, that's the extent of my interest in the well, I'm not so silly as not to realize that something is going on here. Way too many people like plants, way too many people like the flowers and all that kind of stuff. I know there's something there. I just don't know what it is. And I don't want to know what it is. I, I just, that's just not my thing. And so I know, that there, I know that if I wanted to, if I needed to, and I said, okay, let me figure out what this is, then I know that I could grab some books or grab some people that would show me, and, you know, oh, this is what this means, and okay. And then maybe I would go through Phipps Conservatory some other time in the future and actually appreciate it. All of that I know to be true, but because I don't know what I'm looking for, because I don't know what it is, I walk through and it's just a bunch of different size green plants, and that's all that I'm seeing across the board. A whole lot of time, when most of us look at the Scriptures, all we see is a bunch of green plants. All it is is, well, you know, God's talking a bunch of laws, or God's telling to do a bunch of things, or here's a bunch of history stories that, don't really, that I don't really know. Now, it's a little different when we get to the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament, there at least, at least in parts of the New Testament, then we kind of go, okay, I kind of understand. I kind of see some things that are going on. But by and large, particularly in the Old Testament, we don't know what we're looking for, so we never see it. The Bible, from beginning to end, focuses us, drives our attention to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
We've been talking about the importance of the cross and how essential it is for every aspect of the Christian's life. And you take the cross away and you take away Christianity. The cross of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection, that is the gospel message, but that is also the message of the entirety of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are all pointing towards that. From Genesis to Revelation, everything about the Scriptures, the high point, the highlight of those things is Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that we don't think that way, when you're reading Proverbs, you're reading quippy little statements, when we're reading the prophets, we're reading of condemnation and failure of work, when we read the law codes, we're reading all the things that we should be doing and we shouldn't be doing, because that's the way we approach the Scriptures, we miss, we're not looking for, you're walking through and all it looks like is a bunch of green plants. If we put our heads around what the Bible is, that it is the gospel message of Jesus Christ, highlighting and pointing towards Jesus Christ, then every page in the Bible speaks to us in one form or another of Jesus Christ, even when the people who are experiencing it the most don't recognize it. Today we just read a little bit ago about the Passover, and we're going to walk our way through this passage in Exodus 12, so I invite you to have that available so you can look down, so you can see the words on your text, and it can be burned into your hearts, because the Exodus experience, the whole Passover and the events that surround that, this was the pinnacle moment in Israelite history. This was the moment that Israelites all looked, just like as you as a believer, as a Christian, you say, what's a, what's a key moment of our redemptive salvation? What's a key moment whereby we enter into right relationship with Jesus Christ? Every one of us should say the cross of Jesus Christ. What Jesus did on the cross, that's that, that moment, that's that pinnacle, the high point of all of the world and, and everything in life is the cross of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people missing the cross of Jesus Christ would say the high point is the Passover. It is that moment where God then demonstrates most clearly for us what it is that God loves us and how the, the, the extent to which God would pour out His grace upon us. And to the extent that that's what the Jews thought, they were correct. They knew that here in the Passover story, you had an inkling of the very grace of God that would come to its fulfillment for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. They knew that there at the Passover you had God saying to everybody, look here at this event. This is the central event that will teach you of my love. It will teach you of my plan for salvation. It will teach you about what it means to sacrifice, to give, and so that you might have redemption. Everything about the Passover experience is guiding, is supposed to guide us towards the cross of Jesus Christ. And you can see that clearly in the songs that Barrett picked for us to sing today. Singing about the Lamb of God and what the Lamb of God... That's picking up off of what John the Baptist said about Jesus. About what the Gospel writers, all the Gospel writers said about Jesus. The way that Jesus set up His final week of life there so that that Passover sense would be dominant in everybody's reading of the Gospel messages. In the book of Acts, where Peter preaches. He has in mind the Passover sacrifice for the Jews and how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. The text that Jerry read for us out of Hebrews so clearly speaking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that Passover lamb 
that then Paul himself uses those words explicitly. The New Testament saw the Passover experience fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Everything that the Passover was hinting at comes to its fruition in Jesus Christ. We need to learn to read the Bible exactly that way. We need to learn to read the Bible for what it's communicating to us, the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's do that a little bit here, just beginning right off the bat. And you can see this in Exodus 1, chapter, verse 1, sorry, Exodus 12, verse 1, right off the bat where it says, The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the biblical record at this point, the storyline or where we are in the storyline, for 400 years, think about how long that is, by the way. Our nation's only been around about that long, hasn't even been around that long as a nation. For 400 years, the Israelite people were enslaved in Egypt. Now, when we use the term slavery, we immediately think of American chattel slavery, 1800s, uh, and how horrific that was. That, the slavery that the Egyptians were experiencing uh, with the Israelites was slightly different, but still similar enough. It's not a perfect parallel, but you can tend to think of it a little bit there, that the slavery that the Israelites were under was kind of that kind of, a, of an experience. So think of the worst things that you can imagine about the American history uh, experiences with slavery. Translate that back. That's what the Israelites were experiencing for 400 years. And for 400 years, the Israelites were crying out to God, God save us, God save us. And that slavery is an important tip-off here as we t- start talking about the Passover. This You can't understand the Passover story without recognizing that undergirding it is this idea that the Israelites have been slaves for 400 years. Now, that terminology, slavery, for those of you who know your New Testament or who are paying attention to it, you recognize that slavery is exactly the description that Paul gives for what it means to be under sin and under the power of sin. And any one of you who have struggled with sin in your own life, you know exactly the force of that terminology to say that sin enslaves us. It holds us down. It directs us and orients us in paths that we do not want to go. And Paul uses that term and Jesus uses that idea, that concept, that we are slaves to our sin. And he does so specifically so you can set up this parallel with the Israelites and the Passover experience. Because what's the end result of the Passover experience is that the Israelites go free from their Egyptian captors. They are freed from their slavery. Now, they're freed from their physical slavery, but nevertheless there is still this spiritual slavery that every Israelite is still under. The power of sin in their lives where every Christian, all of us, were under this slavery and power of sin. And what the Christ occurs on the Gospel at the cross is exactly the fulfillment of that anticipation. What the Passover anticipated and said, do you see how this happens on a physical level? How you can be freed from your slavery on a physical level? This too can happen for you, that you would be freed from your slavery on a spiritual level. And that's what takes place at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
that we are freed in the exact same way that the Israelites were freed physically, so every one of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ have been freed spiritually by the cross of Christ. So, Moses, God speaks to Moses and to Aaron, that's the uh, religious leaders of the community, the, the religious leaders of the Israelites, and says to them, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And I need to reiterate something that you're going to hear from me over and over again. When you read your scriptures, slow down. Slow down. Pay attention to what you are reading. This is a line that you could easily read right across, but as soon as you slow down and think about it, wow, this is really a big deal. Notice what's happening. God is telling the Israelites here that you are supposed to orient your entire life around this event. This event changes time. Time itself is now reordered so that the central event... Now, why is it the first month of your year? It's that important. Everything about your life is supposed to be oriented now, is supposed to be thought of as starting and as beginning here with the Passover. This orientation of your life is the central key, so much so that everything, time itself shifts. Now, the Egyptians had the start of a different year. Notice, by the way, that we have a start of a different year. We start in January, and that's because of the Romans and trying to conquer uh, Gaul and Spain and all that kind of stuff, and nobody cares about that. Uh, but we start in January, but what God says here is that you should start with your redemption. Think about how you introduce yourself. I, I will confess that I fall into this all the time, and I know better, and I wish that I would catch myself. Imagine yourself introducing yourself to somebody. You go up, you shake your hand. Hi, I'm Henry, and I'm a pastor. All right? Now, I introduce myself that way for two, for two good reasons. One, I'm Henry. I like who I am. I like my name. I'm important to myself, and therefore the first thing that I say is my name. And the second thing I say is my job. What do I do with my life? I'm a pastor. Now, those are important aspects of me. But brothers and sisters, trust me, they're not the most important thing in my life. They're not what I want to lead with. What I want to lead with is, hi, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and my name's Henry, and I'm married to Kelly, and I have two kids, and... I live in Penn Hills, and I'm a pastor. I would love to lead with the most important thing. And that's exactly what God is calling forth from this in this simple line that says, realize that your whole life now, orient your whole year around something totally different. Start with our redemption that we have. Start with your redemption that you have in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, this will be the first month of the year for you. Verse 3, tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. Now, I need to catch that for a second and introduce a concept that runs through the scriptures that kind of bumps up against us a little bit. We have very much so this idea that we are responsible for our own sins. We are an individual, that we are culpable for what we do. We all know that that's true, and the Scriptures acknowledge that. 
the Scriptures acknowledge that each one of us is responsible for ourselves. But the Scripture also introduces this idea that somewhat is a little foreign to us, even though we still operate with it. It's the idea of representative headship, or having a representative that represents you. Who's supposed to get the lamb here? The male, the man, is supposed to get a lamb for the entire household. Now, some people can complain, well, that's just patriarchally run amok, you know, only men count and all that kind of stuff. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that God is saying, look, who represents your family? What happens to the representative happens to the entire family. Now, we still kind of know that's true. Dad gets transferred somewhere. The whole family moves uh, in job or, the, uh, or something along those lines. You know, there is still that representative character that factors into even our everyday life. But think of how powerfully it factors into your salvation. Notice what God's doing here. He says, get a representative, somebody who is going to represent your entire family. So what the representative does, the whole family does. So what happens to the representative happens to the entire family. It's not that the whole family has to do the same things that the representative does. The representative is not just an example. Rather, what happens to the representative happens to the entire family. Brothers and sisters, that's how we live. That's our salvation. Because we hold so passionately not to the fact that what Jesus did on the cross, I too have to do on the cross, but because what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross did happen to me. He was my representative, and because it happens to Him, therefore it, it can be accounted to me. When God looks at me, He sees me as holy in His sight. Why? Because of the work of Jesus Christ. That representative character, the fact that one can stand for the all, for the many, that's set up right here in the Passover, where you have the one, the man, who is functioning, the head of the household. It didn't just have to be a man, by the way. When there wasn't a man involved, then there would have been the, the, the woman who would be the head of the household that would enact this ritual saying, what happens, what I do here is in, stand, in standing in for everybody that I am responsible for, for my entire community, for, for my entire household. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for every Christian in this room. He has said, I am standing in your place, so what happens to me happens to you. Verse 3, take a lamb. Every man is supposed to take a lamb. And then there's that, in verse 4, there's a very generous description of God's social justice. He's aware that some people are too poor to be able to afford a lamb. Or some people are too small to, in order to consume the whole lamb. Or something like So God is like, look, this is supposed to communicate my salvation. Don't get lost, uh, bogged down in, well, what if we can't afford a lamb? Or what if we're too small? Just make this happen. So verse 4 there, uh, join in with your nearest neighbors if you need to, to make this happen. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from either the sheep or the goats. The, ma- the lamb should be a male lamb uh, about a year old. 
Now, unless you're a farmer, maybe this won't strike, maybe you won't know exactly what that implies. The best thing you own, the most wealthy thing you own, is a lamb that's about a year old, that's a male, that's without blemish. Because what that lamb can do, he's at the height of his fertility, he can create other little lambs that are also without blemish. And that they can ha- he can generate a whole bunch of other good lambs because the source of your wealth, the source of your living, the source of your being able to survive was your flock, was how many animals you had. And, the, and you get a lamb that's good, that's healthy, that's a one-year-old lamb that's at the peak of its fertility, that's the lamb that you want to be, you know, mating all over the place. You want that lamb to have lots of little lammies that are coming from it. And God says, that's the one that you sacrifice to me. And notice here that you're not just taking your most wealthy thing. You're also taking your promise for the future. If we kill this lamb, how do we know that the other lambs that we have will have babies years from now? How do we know that we'll have anything to eat? How do we know that we'll have anything to trade? How do we know we'll have any money in future years if we take the very best thing we have and sacrifice it? But of course, and by the way, it's a lamb without blemish. They didn't know a whole lot about genetics back then, but they knew that if you have a lamb without blemish, you get lambs without blemishes. That if you have a lamb that's deformed or a lamb that is blind or something like that, you might get offspring that are blind and deformed and stuff like that. Not very wealthy. So you take your absolute best lamb and that's precisely what God did for us. God took the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, His own Son, at the height of His future abilities, without blemish, and He sacrificed that Lamb for us. Now why? Because that's how bad sin is. You take the best thing that you have because your sin is that bad. It separates you that far from God and you are demonstrating your trust and your confidence. Every Jewish person that took their best of their flock and gave it to God was saying, God, I'm giving you not just what I own now that's what's best, but my promise for the future. And I'm giving it to you. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ so that we might have a future. Take a lamb, verse 5, take a lamb that's a year old, a male. Now, you take it from either the sheep or the goats. Uh, in our mind, there's a big difference between sheep and goats, and we can picture out what the, what the difference is. You know what a sheep is, you know what a goat is. The, the species of sheep-goat that they used back then, it was very hard to distinguish between a sheep and a goat. You can only really tell from the tail. And, that's, uh, and so shepherds, long-term shepherds, couldn't distinguish between what a sheep and a goat is. That's one of the high points of, if you remember in the story, Jesus tells the story of the Father in Judgment Day, where God the Father will separate the sheep from the goats, and the point of that is that God is discerning enough, He's wise enough, He's just enough, that He can accurately distinguish the sheep and the goats. Here you've got this picture, 
that God's saying, look, it doesn't matter if it's a sheep or a goat, just get me a lamb. And then in verse uh, verse uh, 6, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. Now you keep this lamb. Uh, this, is, this is a housing situation, again, that we're maybe unfamiliar with in the uh, Middle East and uh, in parts of Africa, parts of uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, what you would do, you live within a compound. You have a walled compound here. And in the walled compound, there would be three or four buildings. There would be your living quarters. There would be the kitchen off to the side. There's the outhouse. You have, a different, you have different walled buildings uh, inside this compound. But then you have this big courtyard. And the whole idea of tending sheep, etc., is that you lead them out during the day into the fields where they could eat. And then at night you bring them back and they live in your courtyard. Uh, Kelly and I, when we were in Bulgaria, woke up every morning in one of these exact situations and there were sheep all over the courtyard. They just lived in the courtyard with us. That's how the sheep happens. This sheep is different. This lamb is different. This lamb, you take and you care for the lamb. And the idea here is that you don't leave this lamb out in your courtyard with all the other lambs. You take it inside your house. That animal becomes part of your household for the next couple of days. Now, if you have little kids, and they're like my little kids, immediately hey, Fluffy's here, and how wonderful is this? And they immediately fall madly in love with the new pet. And the new pet is just wonderful, and oh, look at how Fluffy is, and we get to play with him, and oh, Mom, can he sleep in my bed, and all of this kind of stuff. And as the dad, you're like horrified. Not because the lamb sleeping in your kid's bed, that's okay. No, you're horrified because you know what's coming in a couple of days. And the kids have wrapped themselves around this lamb. Every once in a while I get this idea when people, when I teach on this passage and people are like, oh, God's so mean for having us kill animals and that kind of stuff. And I sit there and think, and it's worse than what you know. Because God set it up so that you fall in love with this animal so that you identify completely with this animal. So this animal becomes part of your household. This animal is part of your household. And then, on the 14th day of the month, so this animal now has been part of your household for almost a week, the 14th day of the month, at twilight. Now, we think of twilight as maybe the witching hour or something like that where bad things happen. Twilight is that time of the coming of God's wrath. God's judgment is now coming upon the world, and at the time of God's judgment, every person in all of, every household in all of Israel gathers their family out into the courtyard, brings Fluffy on out into the courtyard, and the kids suddenly know what's going on. They remember, and they're panicked, and they're begging you, Dad, take, some, take a different animal. Take something else. Don't take Fluffy. And you take the animal, and you put the animal, you, you lay your hands, Dad lays his hands on the animal, and says, because of my sin, O oh Lord, not me, but take this animal. Because of the sin of my family, O oh Lord, 
take not me, but this animal. And the animals, the lambs looking right at you, you're looking at square in the eyes. What you're supposed to do is be in front of the animal as you are laying your hands on it, praying over that animal, looking it right in the eyes when you cut its throat. And in cutting its throat, if anybody is, the blood goes everywhere, all over you. And you are suddenly covered by the blood of the Lamb. You're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And, and the Lamb and the kids are wailing. And it's this is what it means that I am a sinner under judgment before God. And this is what it means that He hasn't done this to me, but to somebody else standing in my place. That He has done this to the animal standing in my place. And then in verse 7, what do you do with the blood? In the blood of the animal, you drain out the blood of the animal and then you put some of the blood on the doorpost and on the lentil of the house where they eat it. Now, you put the blood on the doorpost. What's on the door? The, door, the lentil, by the way, is the cross piece on the top. So you put it on the sides of the door and across the top piece. Why is that? Well, it's very visible up there. You can always see. Because every and every house has got a door. All that's true. My parents' house uh, up at the lake has a really big pool table in the basement. It's a really big pool table. And when my father talked to me, he says, "Hey, you know, it's all one big slate. It's just one piece of slate under here. It's a really big piece of slate." And 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 I'm looking at the doors, and I'm thinking, "How did they get this big, massive piece of slate through these doors?" And I asked my dad, and he said very seriously, and I think there might be some truth to it, they built the house around the pool table. You know, they dug the thing, put the pool table in, and then they built the rest of the house because it's down in there. So aside from my dad's pool table, how does everything that you own get into your house? Through the doorposts, underneath the lentil. When you paint the blood around the doorpost and across the lentil, you are saying that everything in this house is covered by the blood of the Lamb. And that is absolutely crucial because everything in the house is tainted with sin. Your sin is not just skin deep. Your sin just doesn't touch on the things that you do. It just doesn't touch sometimes on the things that you think. Our sin touches everything in our life, and you know that. You experience that every day, the brokenness of our world that touches on everything. Our kids, our pets, our parents, our job, our love, our hate. Everything is touched by the presence of sin. And when you cover your door frame with the blood of the Lamb, you are announcing to all that everything in this house Everyone in this house and everything in this house is covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now why do you need to do that? We need to do that because of verse 12. So in your Bibles, if you grab verse 12 and 13 here for us. Verse 12 and 13 we have God saying, this is why you do these things. Uh, you know what, I can't miss it. 
too much. In verse 10 and 11, you're told that you're supposed to eat the lamb with your clothes tucked, your, your, your robe tucked in, your, you know, the staff in your hand, all that kind of stuff. The Christian faith, from beginning to end, is a journey. From the very beginning of your life, God is taking you somewhere. Especially the very beginning of your Christian life. God is taking you somewhere. He will take you just as you are. But He won't leave you that way. And picturing that is how you eat the Passover. You, take the, you participate in this Passover willing and ready to be on a journey. You're on a journey and you're going somewhere. And that's the way you're supposed to picture this. We're supposed to get ready as believers because He's not leaving you where you are. He's got you on a journey. But in verse 12, For I will pass through the land. Now this is God. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land. God will strike down and kill all the firstborn in the land. If you're not familiar with the Exodus story, you have to go back and read a little bit to understand why this is the judgment that God is using. But the firstborn is a representative of everybody in the family. And God here is saying everyone in the family, everyone in the land is under God's judgment. Not because they're Egyptians, but because they're sinners. Because they have defiled the Lord's law, just like we do every single day. And God says because of that, He is exercising judgment, not on everybody, because He's a God of love. But He's going to exercise that judgment upon the representative of every one of the families. Unless He sees that blood that's painted on the doorpost. Then He says, this family has already paid the debt. They've already paid the debt through a representative. Oh, the representative was just a lamb until 2,000 years ago when that representative was Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. So that every time God looks at you, He sees that covering of His Son's blood and where He's able to say over and over again, this one is covered by the blood of the Lamb. They have been forgiven. For the firstborn, the judgment, has truly indeed fallen upon that firstborn, that representative of every one of us, the firstborn of God Himself, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are free. Brothers and sisters, you are Free because of the work of Jesus Christ. And because you're free, you're free to grab your Bibles. You're free to grab your Bibles and to read slowly. Know what you're reading. You are reading the story of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. When you're reading it, look for it. You'll see it. God will reveal it to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask exactly that, that you would reveal to each and every one of us the story of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.